Hello, I hope your day has been good enough. My name is Alex Hamo, and welcome to Alex Listens, a podcast about philosophy and politics and race and mental health as well. Today I sat down with the legendary Simon Critchley, professor of philosophy at the New York School of Social Research and columnist, moderator and writer for the New York Times. Uh, an esoteric and unknown newspaper. Simon Critchley's philosophy rejects the idea that philosophy begins with wonder. Critchley instead argues that philosophy begins with disappointment. And this is precisely the kind of stuff that I like to hear. None of this wishy-washy, happy-happy, positive serotonin stuff. Simon's work principally focuses on political and religious disappointment, but he is also very interested in rituals and uh, social mysticism. Why are we superstitious? Why do we touch wood after we say stuff? Simon also dropped out of school when he was 16, played in punk rock bands in London until his early 20s, and then got into philosophy. And last but not least, Simon did Speed with Lemmy from Motorhead, which is probably the most uh, profound flex of all time. So, without any further ado, Simon Critchley. Enjoy the interview. So, Simon Critchley, thanks for joining me. I hope, hope you're doing well. How's everything in New York? Everything is fall into pieces again and um yeah omicron is beginning to rage through uh we're about usually about two to three weeks behind what's happening in the uk in the pandemic so um it's bad my sister's got covid oh, um, no. not terrible she seems to be okay and um people it's just uh, people are people are succumbing but it doesn't seem to be as serious a, a variant but who knows mm. but it's, a, it's a very odd situation mm. uh, at least there's less traffic on the roads again <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's always an upside so yeah. it's all right okay okay and how um sorry yeah, Christmas time. Yeah, white a white Christmas. Hey, we've got the the heat the heat waves over here in in the east coast of Australia. Um, and how uh, how has how has kind of being pushed to be indoors and um, not being able to teach face to face, not being able to engage with others face to face? How is this impacting your philosophy? Has it kind of changed your priorities at all? Has it? you know, revealed things to you? I was right all along, you know. Um, uh, yeah, no, I just, so I, I, um, I mean, 2020 was was terrible and all the things that people say, but I, I thrived. I had a great pandemic and, um, you know, uh, I've spent most of my life in alone in rooms or trying to be alone in rooms to get work done other than, the rest of the world was forced into the same situation and mm. forced to face the, the same existential <laughs> dilemmas that um, people like me have been you know, banging on about for <laughs> decades. So it was um, a philosophical moment. 2020 was a philosophical moment. And um, so I 
was I'd already begun to do this uh, podcast. Isn't quite this. I, I think of it as an audio book, really. This thing called Applied Digger, which was eighteen episodes, um, where I lay out. It's a reading paragraph by paragraph of Heidegger's being in time. And I'd begun that in um, January and then the pandemic happened and I got equipment at home and I, and that became my uh, project. And it was, um, that was good. Hmm. And, um, and then things have become steadily more, I don't know, disorientating and it's fine. You know, I'm not, you know, it's, um, it's it's a it's uh, it's pushed people back on their their heels a bit, and that's been that's been good, and it's um, allowed people to question things that they should be questioning, like why are they constantly traveling to places and doing things which are largely pointless. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, and some people have been reading and listening to books, and and it's led people to question the relationship between their thinking bits and their corporeal bits. And um, so to that extent, a pandemic is a, a kind of optimal situation for philosophy. And, you know, I think we just forget the, um, it, we forget about plague, you know, for as long as there's been human society, from wherever there's been human society, in whichever part of the earth, there's been pestilence. And uh, we had just forgotten about that, remembered things like wars, uh, forgotten the Spanish flu. Hmm. So to that extent, there's a, there is a real virtue in this. And it's also revived all sorts of, of archaic, uh, feelings and um which is good to think about you know it's good to be troubled by safety health um a lot of people have had had say last year hypochondriac symptoms um weird dreams visions um and uh the kind of the way in which we'd accustomed, the, the kind of a picture of the world that we'd accustomed ourselves to believing was the way things were has broken down. And um, I mean, that's, I'm not saying that's good, but when it does break down, it, it gives you, it forces you into a situation where you have to reflect. Mm. So to that extent it's good for business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a very, um, a very, timely moment to be talking about Heidegger, um, um, especially this, this concept of, you know, what is familiar breaking down. This is, I guess, a pillar of existential philosophy. Um, so I guess, yeah, a few things, a few things that are very interesting in what you just said. One of them, firstly, before we kind of get into philo the philosophy, I'm interested in, in hearing about, um, what it is about you, what it is about you that, uh, that makes you feel, makes you want to be, um, you know, alone with books, alone in a library. Um, ha have you always been this way or is this, because I know you had, you know, you, you kind of, 
Um, you left school when you were 16. Um, you were in the punk rock scene. Um, you did some speed with Lemmy one time. Um, <laughs> and then you found philosophy. Um, and yeah, philosophy is a very solitary project. Um, you have to be comfortable with being alone. And so, yeah, what, what is it about you that kind of, that likes being alone in that way, alone with books, alone with your thoughts? Um, well, I suppose, uh, I mean, a book that was very important to me from which actually I taught last year for the first time was, uh, is R.D. Lang's The Divided Self. And um, Lang, you know, in attacking the, the kind of the, the inhumanity with which the mad were treated, uh, gives this extraordinary description of um, what he calls ontological insecurity. Um, and he says, well, let's, let's imagine there are people who are secure in themselves, in the world, in who they are and what's going on around them. And then there are people who are not. And um, the, uh, the so-called matter at one end of that ontological insecurity spectrum, but many of the rest of us are somewhere along that, that line. And uh, the mechanisms of um, ontological insecurity are, let's think, what's he saying? Isolation, a sense of withdrawal from a, a, a world, um, uh, an implosion that, in a sense, that you, people that don't explode out, but kind of implode in, in a kind of anxiety, anxious imploding, and people that often have a relationship to the world, which is um, what's he call it, petrification, where you you see the world very much as peopled with unreal sort of, you know, cardboard figures in, in, in acting out some kind of strange game, which is called existence. So if that, if that is your, if that ontological insecurity is one that you find yourself inside, then uh, being alone is easiest. The basic anxiety of, uh, of being in the world with others is um, is assuaged by being alone with yourself, and then and then you know covering that over with, or using using that as a way of trying to generate work. So a lot of what I do is sitting at a desk like I'm sitting at now and trying to form sentences, and uh, uh, often without knowing you know, where it's going and, and why I'm doing it. But that's, that requires um, a certain discipline. Um, you do wonder, I do wonder why, why on earth I'm doing it a lot of the time, but that's what I, that's what I do. And I'm happy enough to have a, to teach philosophy as a day job. And I don't miss, I mean, the actual contact with, um, you know, students as, um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I mean, I prefer Zoom in a way. It's easier. It's actually, you can be more intimate in a strange way. And um, I never really thought of myself as much of a classroom teacher. I think I can do certain things in classrooms, but 
there's a, an American seminar style, uh, which I certainly don't have, which is, you know, to have a, you know, an open discussion. Never been much good at that. Um, so this rather suits me. Um, so I guess, you know, one's own sense of just kind of not really fitting into the world. And then and that could have led to, you know, all sorts of strange outcomes. But happily, I found um, I found books. I found, uh, and I had access to free, you know, uh, higher education. Um, and I grabbed it with both hands and still very grateful that that happened. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's one real devastating fact about our time is that there is a movement away from the humanities in the higher education world um funding cuts uh you know people being incentivized to get into maths science engineering technology um and i wonder whether those of us because i'm i'm similar to you in the sense that i think you know this kind of um what did you call it? Uh, ontological insecurity. This is something that I've always felt. And so I'm a relatively solitary character. I'm an only child, which makes it even more natural for me to be solitary. Um, but yeah, you know, philosophy has been something that has kind of allowed me to comfortably sit in my ontological insecurity. And I worry that many people are being, aren't, aren't ever going to be exposed to the kind of thinking that allows one to explore their ontological insecurity. It seems like what people are encouraged to do is, you know, to do all of this very strange kind of self-affirming positive stuff like meditate and do yoga rather than, you know, kind of get really deep into um, their own experience. Um, so yeah, like has philosophy for you been therapeutic? I know Wittgenstein talks about philosophy as therapy and you're a big Wittgenstein fan. Um, uh, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Not, not a Wittgensteinian, but yeah, a, a, a fellow traveler at times. Yeah. He used to be absolutely central to philosophy in you know, the context that I knew and, um, I regret his absence. You know, he's, he was, he, I think we could do with, there's things we could learn from Wittgenstein. But yeah, but the therapeutic, well, yes, I mean, at a very naive level, the, um, um, when it started for me, um, I mean, I had, I mean, to, to cut a long story very short, I had a, a really serious industrial accident when I was, 18 years old and um that my hand was effectively kind of severed and uh, led to all sorts of strange effects one of which was amnesia um loss of most of my childhood memories so 18 onwards it was really there was that and then about 18 months after that happened and it was a um, you know, a troubled period, uh, I began to read and, and then I did sort of remedial exams that I should have done 
uh, I should have passed when I was 16 and then, then found my way to a position where I could apply to universities, which is something I hadn't thought about. And I was, I was reading. I mean, I was, it's a the sense in which being an autodidact, I think is um, uh, really important. I wish there were more autodidacts. I like autodidacts because there's a weirdness to teaching yourself things, just using a, a puppet library or whatever it might be to kind of figure out the world. And the, what you were saying at the beginning about the humanities, in a sense, yes, uh, but I mean, for me, that's been a constant in um, my life. I mean, I went to the university in 1982, to the University of Essex, which was, you know, ranked as one of the worst universities in the UK. Actually, it was a very good university, but it was badly ranked because of things like class and uh, the fact that people, it didn't sound nice, Essex. People liked the idea of Exeter. That was a nice middle class university, but Essex was kind of um, too kind of Essexy. And so uh, philosophy departments were being closed by Thatcher's government in the 1980s, and Essex very nearly closed when I was a student. And um, wow. that experience has stayed with me. So I've always thought that it's preposterous that these things are, actually exist, philosophy departments. Humanities, I never really, I don't, it says I don't know what that is. I always think of, you know, the manatees in Florida, those strange, you know, uh, aquatic creatures that uh, some say were confused with mermaids uh, in the distant past by, you know, obviously sailors who were having some kind of sexual urges. And uh, I always think they save the manatees defend the manatees, but the humanities, <laughs> the way it's done in the US, I just think, I don't care. I don't really know. I'm not gonna, because I, I know what these people are like. And um, I, the kind of the, the world of entitlement and privilege that defines a lot of my experience of the humanities in the United States and, and Britain, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I wanna defend that. I want to defend the idea of you know, uh, <laughs> free higher education and having an education system that can get people uh, from backgrounds uh, where they would not have access to education to where they can have access to a really a full interesting education. And um, that's really important to me. But um, I think you could do that through different means. So I'm not opposed to you know stem the emphasis upon stem or anything like that i i find the um hmm. there's a kind of there's a kind of mentality in the humanities of oh lord we're under threat they're coming for us why can't they realize how wonderful we are and i mean so my context is you know that the the government of margaret thatcher were engaged in uh, a long ideological war with the the left and the academic left, and they were trying to shut down a number of the new universities that had appeared in the fifties uh, and sixties in, in the UK, and um, and we had to use you know whatever by any means necessary to to survive. So we used market techniques to you know uh, 
produce MAs in continental philosophy that were then that then thrived because they were popular, because we were doing something that other more mainstream departments weren't doing. So for me, there's always been a kind of um, sense of, you know, of course they're gonna they're gonna eliminate philosophy at any moment. <laughs> and uh, it's it's a miracle that it continues. So I always see I always see, you know, uh, the place that I'm working in, in this case of philosophy department at the new school, that they're gonna come and get us a, you know, one day and we just have to just, you know, keep battling on. But we can't expect anything and we're not entitled to anything. Uh, we're certainly not entitled to put our graduate students into the kind of debt that we put them into. I find that scandalous. But the, um, it's, um, so something like that. So, uh, so um, not much of a defense of humanities there, mm. actually. <laughs> mm. Mm. And no, I mean, I just, I just think it's, you know, I just, I don't really know what they're talking about. I don't, this idea of, these things are somehow given and you should expect these things to continue in this form. And it's kind of shocking and outrageous when they're called into question. I think, well, of course they should be called into question. Of course governments are gonna be in, you know, mm. ideological fights with uh, uh, institutions of learning. And we have to learn to fight back and mm. uh, not just defend, but attack. And so I've, I'm very interested in, you know, I mean, this has been, for philosophy, I think the last, I don't know, the last 30 years have been, a, you know, a, of a complex period. Because on the one hand, um, I think there's more, there's, there's more public awareness of philosophy than there was when I was a student, that's for sure. Access to it. And uh, I mean, the internet, in a way, has been good for philosophy. I mean, it's meant that, um, Things can be digested, circulated, made available. And I think it's been terrible for, say, the novel and terrible for fiction. And, you know, people sitting down reading Middlemarch or working through the novels of Dickens, it's been really bad for that. But for ideas and for, uh, you know, debate and controversy and philosophy is, philosophy is a discipline that it can use the long form, like, Hegel's logic, but can also use the short form, and um, and, I, and and I've also from the beginning, it, it, for me, it's been a, an issue of almost kind of religious commitment that uh, philosophy should be part of the life of culture. However, that's understood. I mean, that, the way in which a culture thinks about itself and reflects on itself, and um, there's a way in which that is easier to do now than it was. So, to that extent, you can say, well. You know, philosophy is actually really well positioned. Mm. And then you've got, you look at what's happening, you know, out there in uh, the world of work and the world of money making and big tech and all of that. And um, there's tons of opportunities for philosophers there. There's tons of things that uh, they can do. And these people, you know, like the people that run Facebook are suddenly faced with questions of say, the meaning and significance of what they're up to, which can't be answered by engineering, right? I think, you know, up to a certain point, let's say up to 2012, 13, I think it was legitimate for the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world to think their model of engineering would lead to connection, sharing, good things. 
and you know move fast, break things, and then create communities. And obviously, that's gone horribly, horribly wrong. And it's forced them to uh, reflect on questions of, of philosophical questions, obviously moral questions. People like Tristan uh, Harris and all these people have been doing that. But so to, in that way, uh, the opportunities for philosophy at the moment are, I think, uh, robust. Mm. Um, that's not reflected academically, however. That's the thing. I mean, so academically, I think academic philosophy is still very much in a, I don't know, living in a some version of the past, which uh, I think it needs to break free from. It doesn't. I don't think academic philosophy is really aware of its own relevance to how people move, think, and reflect as they go about the the world. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And have you have you have have you considered leaving academic philosophy and getting into like you know, doing something for a place like Facebook, um, kind of, you know, doing some kind of consulting like that? Has that ever? I've considered, I mean, I've, I mean, I think of myself as not as a philosopher. I think of myself as someone that I teach philosophy and I teach in a, I've always taught in a philosophy department and I'm, I have a kind of siege mentality about philosophy departments and uh, I want them to, survive and to you know to to as much as possible reflect the world that they that they're in and that mm. that means you know how how people are hired who gets hired and things like that. I'm very you know, I'm very keen on that but the um I think the, the sense in which uh I got a day job when I was 28 you know which is teaching philosophy and I'm incredibly grateful for that and um, when you talk to a lot, a lot of academics it's as if they uh, they don't see that how ridiculously privileged they are in terms of that you maybe you're not paid a fortune but you get paid a, a salary and you get health care and you get you know you get enough to get by to basically teach and, and think about things and uh, so that's good but I've always done other things. I've always kind of uh, mm. mixed things up. And I guess one of the nice things about being in, in uh, somewhere like New York is that it's, uh, it's a city that's full of, um, or it's a city where there are a good number of quite interesting people and uh, who are alive to all sorts of intellectual ideas who are not academics. Hmm. So it's, it's much easier to kind of stumble into contexts where you'll find you're having, you know, really interesting, a really interesting, you know, drink with someone who's, you know, running a media company or whatever it might be. So I think the, having, uh, having a foot outside is, I think really, really helpful. And I, 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 I don't take, I don't take a kind of, um, you know, I don't think of business as uh, evil. You know, I think that uh, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of version of academic Marxism which I I've always been deeply suspicious of because I've it's been around me for as long as I've been a student and then a, a teacher, which is um, has a very haughty relationship to 
the world of work and business and people making money. I don't. I think that's, um, I don't think what they're all doing is right. I think it has to be understood and, and appreciated and also and not kind of um, not looked down on because there's a lot of very smart people out there that, and somewhere like, you know, being in New York, you can find those people quite in, quite easily and have really interesting exchanges with them. So, yeah, but, uh, you know, but I'm a lifer. I'm a lifer. I'm, 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 I'm here. I'm not going anywhere for the time being. Mm. And what you're talking about reminds me of something that uh, you and Brian Eno spoke about in your conversation, where he was talking about this senius thing. Um, this concept that something like, you know, today we have great reverence and feel kind of, uh, you know, particularly nostalgic about um, icons from the past. And we think about them as these uh, independent creatures who've generated their works and their art independently. Um, And, you know, what you've described in New York very clearly undermines that there is a very active community um, whether people are aware of it or not Um, there is a lot that happens around people when they are making things when they are thinking Um, yeah i mean seniors is great i mean seniors is really i mean it's it's i mean because because eno's using it to think about music and again you're right i mean we think about um we'll think about historical periods in terms of individuals uh, like the members of the Beatles or Bowie or whoever it may be, but we don't see the scene that made that possible. And and in in in, in my case, um, you know, uh, the seniors was uh, the world of kind of weird provincial academia uh, in England in the nineteen eighties, which was an extraordinarily uh, permissive and uh, kind of intellectually promiscuous uh, context, which uh, made all sorts of things possible. And there were just really interesting people around who uh, you could engage with, get drunk with, have a nice time with, and uh, and who wanted to talk about things. And so you, you felt, and and that, bridge, that made work happen, you know? Um, so, I mean, it, it, it sort of makes you sad in a way that, if I think back to when I was a, uh, an undergraduate and a graduate student, then there were, there, were, there were a good number of us interested in these things. And not everybody has persisted, um, but they were, it was really uh, important that everybody was there. And that's, and that's seniors, for, seniors for, for, for thinking and doing, doing philosophy, I think is really important. Which is why, you know, although, although I'm, I'm quite happy with zoom and all the rest there is a it's it's essential for for students uh, to have a to have a scene to have somewhere where they can you know they'll students always talk about the people they were students with and they imagine it as some kind of special time because it was special for them um and um the pandemic has dented that and has a has had a, had a very We'll see what effect that has, but we have, you know, a couple of years of people that don't really have that experience of being alongside other people. Not in the the actual intellectual content, 
And you can do that online or you can do that in different forms, but it's all the stuff that's happening, you know, it's the noises off and the, you know, the, the, the conversations on the way to or away from or what happens, you know, in a bar late at night and all of the, all the interesting stuff where you find that, oh yeah, we, we have all these things in common. Actually, we both like this music or whatever. And then, and then, um, and then scenes can begin to form. So I hope we get back to that. the new year and it's the time of giving so if you're enjoying this conversation if you've enjoyed any of the other episodes that i've released or any of my other work please consider supporting my project you'll find a link to patreon in the bio for this episode Uh, you'll also find a link to paypal there and you know as little as buying me a coffee once a month will be super helpful and allow me to keep recording episodes so i don't have any ads on this podcast and that's intentional because i rely on you the listener to support my work if you're enjoying it. Yeah, one thing, one thing that this has got me thinking about is um, whether the Anglo world, uh, whether Anglo culture is good at kind of cultivating and allowing this concept of seniors because in Australia, um, you know, which has incredibly strong roots, um, to the UK is very similar in many ways. Um, you know, people aren't very good at engaging with strangers. Um, and it's kind of unacceptable to go up to someone on the street and say, hello, people kind of panic. And, you know, they're very kind of reluctant to my, my, my experience has been that people generally treat conversations with strangers as some kind of affront. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm one because while, while that may be a kind of, you know, a general trend in Anglo culture, it's, it's definitely not true in certain creative and kind of musical spheres. It's more, it's more that there are, um, a senior is somewhere where there can be uh, a kind of amalgam. It's, uh, to think about it in, um, you know, in terms of uh, you're making something very hot. You're creating an amalgam like, like bronze, which requires heat and technology and stuff. And then uh, at a certain point, individuals can amalgamate they can kind of you know set themselves on fire for a short period of time and um i think that's possible anywhere Mm. and intellectual cultures um are like that there'll be just moments of um spectacular sort of incendiary moments you know like the um late 18th early 19th century in certain parts of Germany or you think about the the French context from about the 1930s it survives until pretty much the 70s just as an incredibly fertile scene where people were in relations of rivalry they knew each other reading each other it was a small scene it was also a scene bound by a language and it produced you know a number of generations of intellectual brilliance for someone like Cogev through to Sartre, Merleau-Ponty, on through to uh, 
you know, Foucault, Derrida, Deleuze, these people, and um, and Sarah Kaufman and Irigaray and all the other people. And and that there is um, so I think scenes are just happen. They require they require certain conditions, or that they're helped by certain conditions. But I mean, I think that to put it really brutally, I think that. Uh, I think the, I mean the, the task of education, if you like, is to give people the conditions when they can kind of, they can immolate themselves. They can they can set themselves on fire intellectually. They can they can create a spark, a flame, and that's all you want. That's really if if um, and if when there's a when there's a flame, you look at the flame. You don't look at the wick or the candle, but that came out of a, a scene of a whole number of other people that were doing that. And that will, and so that's, I mean, that kind of, um, that kind of sheer intellectual and cultural excitement is really what, you know, um, I like, I like it when that's happening. And I, I can, you know, and I've had, students over the years who've been like that and that makes me really happy uh that's got harder with you know the last you know there's no there's no doubting that academia has become a more policed controlled environment and um without getting into you know cancel culture and all of that but that that has had an effect there is a sense in which if you if you know as, as when i was a student that in a sense, there was an enormous freedom with uh, the relation that I had with fellow students and then students that were further a lot ahead of me and then with faculty or professors who were very young, uh, often at the time, and then it was just, it was great fun. And, um, and nobody was Instagramming anything, you know, so there was a great freedom to that, which I, which I miss. Mm. But I think it's still possible. Um, Australia would be, I think that the, uh, I mean, I think I could think about a number of scenes. I think about, you know, I taught at the um, University of Sydney uh, in 2000 for a, a, a chunk of a semester. I should have been there for longer. I, I enjoyed myself enormously. I had a wonderful time, but I was going into the, there was something that was called the, I think the visiting lecturer in philosophy. And um, at that point, the, the Sydney philosophy department was divided into two. There was general philosophy and traditional and modern. And these departments are divided because of Australia's participation in the, in the Vietnam War and then uh, different reactions to it. It basically fell along the lines of whether people were, uh, there was a strong Marxist tradition in, um, in, in Sydney uh, Marxist feminism was very strong. And then you had a kind of um, strand of analytic philosophy that was, I guess, more, slightly more conservative, in some cases, slightly reactionary, and that created a kind of war. So those departments divided. And the day I arrived in Sydney, by sheer coincidence, was the day those two departments were forced to reunify, not out of any love for each other, but because the administration just said, you've got to, we can't afford to have two departments. We'll only have one. Simon Critchley's coming to town, so we've got a. <laughs> but it was but so there were scenes there, and I think about the scene of um, 
in particular, I don't know, the, the, the feminist scene in, in Sydney was legendary um, from, you know, Sydney libertarians, you know, the, you know, the Jermaine Greers and the, and the anarchist scene in the 60s and then the Marxist scene. And that was, um, and that allowed, you know, and there were teachers at Sydney like Elizabeth Gross, who was, had an extraordinary influence and, you know, all sorts of students that she had who were teaching. And then I think of philosophers like Maury Gatons and Genevieve Lloyd, who was at UNSW. I mean, yeah, there was a scene. Uh, I think it has to, it, it has to be the, um, I think the issue of, I think the, the problem, in many ways, the problem with where we are in general now is, you know, really what, what is important and what counts as important and the, I think the ultimate truth of the internet is that it makes everything unimportant. Everything loses significance because everything is just like something else, you know, mm. here's this new work and then here's a meme about with a cat. And it's, it makes it really hard to get a sense of what is significant. But I think, um, uh, you know, it's um, all is not lost, I guess I'm saying. Hmm. How, how, <laughs> yeah, maybe I think it's it's hard as a young person using the internet, especially when you've grown up um, with a kind of, you know, very curated uh, slideshow of, of what the world looks like. That makes it, I feel like the effect on me has been that it has absolutely decimated my attention span. Um, and so, you know, going from... Instagram to philosophy is one of the most jarring jumps possible. Um, yeah, but I'm wondering what your relationship to the internet is like. Are you, do you use social media? Do you find that it's, you know, I guess, yeah. How, how do you, how do one you thing, view? I mean, one, one thing, it, it, Eno's diaries from 1995, which were reissued last year and we were, I was talking to him about, as well as about some of my stuff. He uh, he makes a number of kind of what he calls bizarre predictions in the book. And one is that in the future, everybody will be their own publicist, which in 1995 sounded like a weird thing to say. There used to be people called publicists that did that. And we've all become our own publicists. And the sense everybody's relation to social media is you know, everybody is a, a self, self-publicizing narcissistic wreck. So in a sense, you can, you can opt out of that. Um, so I use it for, you know, sending things around. Uh, I sometimes wonder why on earth I'm doing it. And then, you know, <laughs> there's, then there's cat videos and then, and then I'll, get, I'll get some news from my family in England about, about this and that. But, um, I think that um, I think that um, the the rise of audio I think is interesting to my mind. I think you know, it hit me. I think it was last year. Last year was the pandemic. It was the year before that. And when I really started to listen to things a lot more consistently like podcasts and everything else. And I, I'd, I'd forgotten, but then I remembered that the way in which I 
educated myself was often by recording things. So I would get um, records of um, poetry from the library and I'd record them onto cassette and have a, an early form of a, a Walkman on and I'd walk around and I would then memorize things. And so often for me, education came through the ears. And I think that's, I think there's a, you know, there's, a, there's, an, there's an eye ear issue, which is that the, our eyes are tired, screens, 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 all of that. But I think the ear is, is, is relatively open and, um, you know, it's, it's something which um, philosophy or history or the life of ideas can use to, to get people's attention. And that is much easier than it was. Um, attention spans, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. I just don't know enough about that. I mean, I, I, some, I sometimes think it's over, overstated and then sometimes I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Hmm. Um, but, you know, there's something to be, I mean, if I think about the reading that I used to do before I went to university, so when I was doing my remedial stuff and, um, and I, there were these, and the way it was, there was a library, there was a bookshop, maybe two bookshops, and then I, I get the books that I thought that I should read because they seemed important and I'd sit and read them. So something like, um, you know, Cervantes' Don Quixote, and I read the whole thing, just about 900 pages. I remember nothing about it, but I know I read it and I could, and I, back then I didn't used to mark up texts. I just used to read the words and turn the pages. I hadn't kind of, I thought that, text shouldn't be soiled with with the underlinings so um obviously that meant not being interrupted right so there's something about that which is true that the, the way in which the we've 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 moved we didn't choose this we've 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 complied with it a form of existence where our ability to focus on something is really um compromised and um and that is, uh, that's a problem. And it's a problem also if you, yeah, if you write. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of committed to writing books. Uh, and I like that because I think of books as a, you know, uh, an outmoded medium, you know, kind of pointless medium, which of course makes me love them even more. So I will, I will devote the rest of my life to producing more forms of this pointless medium. But uh, yeah. Where that takes us, <laughs> no, no, it takes us to a very interesting place, which is that, um, the Brian Eno's prediction about you know, in 1995, everyone becoming their own publicist. Um, I think that's certainly true. Um, and I think one, one thing that has come along with this is that, um, everyone feels entitled or everyone feels as though their what they're putting out is worth kind of is worth being put out there um and yeah i'm wondering i'm one yeah yeah the, the gatekeepers have gone um and yeah yeah some of it you know there's you get yeah you get a real mix um, and I'm wondering whether, whether you think this, this shift towards, um, you know, kind of 
idealization of the self that has come with social media. Um, whether you think this is good or bad, because very, very early on in our conversation, you were talking about how the pandemic has, has kind of revealed to us the importance of, of, you know, some kind of key values, what it means to be a person, you know, to, to eat, to walk, to exercise, to socialize. Um, and in, in one way, this is like, you know, kind of central Nietzschean stuff, you know, having a robust metabolism. He's always banging on about that, you know, being kind of, um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I suppose like how, what do you think that it is good for people to kind of have this, um, this connection with, and this confidence, um, whether or not it's, you know, authentic or not, this confidence in kind of putting the self out there. Um, how, how do you feel about this? I don't, I don't believe that people are confident about it. I think they're terrified and alone and, uh, lost. Um, yeah, they're lost. I mean, I think if, you know, uh, people are largely lost, alone, and they're driven into lost and aloneness with social media. That makes all of that worse because it inflames um, mechanisms of comparison. Um, you know, Instagram is a great example of that. You know, I have this, here's my life, it's shit, and I look at this life and it's great. Why can't I have what they've got? And, um, and then that and then that that mechanism gets kicks in, and um, that produces um, um, often the appearance of a self, which is um, which one wants to, you know, one's public face, behind which is a kind of, you know, terrified, <laughs> terrified, lonely, lost individual. So there's that, and you could track that back. I'm enough of a, you know. Um, admirer of the work of Adam Curtis, where he, there's this wonderful TV series that he did in the 80s, I suppose, was The Century of the Self. And that's basically at the 20th century is the century of the self and the, the rise of the self, uh, uh, both theoretically in relation to, say, something like psychology and psychoanalysis, and then the techniques developed in there, used in marketing and propaganda and public relations. And then in a sense, what we've, what we've got to now is a, is a, is a kind of hyper, you know, a hyper self publicization as, a, as the default mode of what it means to be a, a person. And that is, um, that's, that's pretty awful because, you know, and Adam Curtis's point, uh, which he always makes and in a sense he doesn't have an answer to it and is that you know, there used to be collective movements and now there are just selves how do we get back to those collective movements he doesn't really know i'm not sure about that but i think a lot of it is the the focus on the self that's true i think a lot of it requires um uh, I mean, say 10 years ago, 15 years, years ago, as much, I was thinking much more along these lines, but I mean, what would be, um, what kind of institutions could we think of as institutions that would allow thinking and 
uh, interesting forms of reflection. And is the university such an institution? Um, and I tried, tried to write something about that um, some years back and um, haven't really gone back to it because I guess I'm a little bit, the answer is no, I haven't. I think there have been various attempts to construct institutions, um, new kinds of schools. And um, I think that's really, so if we're talking about something collective, then it, we have to be thinking about institutions, not institutions necessarily as state-sponsored institutions or state-funded, but institutions which are, you know, collectively owned, shared and used. And so I like the idea of, um, I've always liked reading groups and um, informal collectives and of different types. And, and that's, that, that's one thing that could be done. And obviously that tendency, which was to be going on in particular with the arrival of, I mean, you know, if you get to think about, you know, smartphone saturation is around 2012 or thereabouts, certainly in the, the developed world, that's kind of racing along in its way. And then, uh, and then the pandemic, the last two years has kind of accelerated all of that and created awful strange distortions, I think, in where people, people's longing for collectivity has, but the fact that they're alone has produced these, you know, proliferation of, of movements online of, of different kinds on the left, on the right. And, uh, and that is a kind of mad psychotic universe that you know we believe to be real because the media likes reporting on it. And I don't know what to make of that. Um, I mean, and, and the way people's moods, um, uh, uh, I mean, you know, watching being being here in you know the Trump era and. Um, the way people's moods and reactions were calibrated to you know, Donald Trump's tw Twitter feed was, it becomes quite alarming after a while. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. Mm. One, one answer is just, well, you know, you take over the, the means of production and um, seize hold of the state, uh, you know, the orthodox Marxist answer, or you disappear off to the woods or the suburbs and try and build something with a few people on your own, which was the kind of the more anarchist solution, which I was more, I was more attracted to in the past because it's more controllable, even though you know it's sort of doomed to fail, at least it's fun while it lasts. And, um, mm. you know, it's, um, so if, if you think about, for example, I mean, just here in New York and the time that I've been here, um, I mean, you know, the Occupy, which occupied a lot of my time and uh, when it was uh, when it was happening and the, the hopes that we had for that. And then um, you ask yourself, you know, a decade on from that, or what, you know, what consequences did that have? Well, you could say, well, that led to, you know, Tarrier Square and that, that what did, how did that go? You know, that led to an even more repressive dictatorship in, in Egypt. And it's kind of, and then you look at movements last year, like the uh, like BLM and, uh, you know, what happened after the murder of George Floyd um, in the United States and across the world. It's, 
a year or a year and a half on from that, it's really hard to figure that out now. You know, what you know, what was that? Was that real? Was that was that was that kind of manic, you know, response to the kind of melancholy that everybody had been through? It kind of flipped over, but it was it was wild here, but it wasn't. It's not clear what it was. You know, mm-hmm. people talk with great confidence about a movement and a revolution and that doesn't seem to have occurred. And so what is the, um, what is the nature of kind of collective movements now and how do they actually last and how do they imprint on the memory? So to that extent, I guess the, the, the old anarchist part of me would be, yeah, you take a few friends and you try and make something on your own and uh, you control it as much as possible. And, um, and the, the less visible you are, the better. Um, but, you know. Hmm. And do you, do, you, do you think there will be kind of any closure or clarity in terms of what, you know, like, I guess the Occupy stuff did happen a while ago. And if, if you sense that there isn't much clarity in terms of what, what actually came from that, then I imagine... Um, you know, we there might be the same destiny in terms of uncertainty for BLM, um, but I think yeah, there's a purity on the left. There is there's a pure. I mean, I'm I'm a you know I was uh, I mean my political formation was um, I mean I was in the, I was in the Labour Party in Britain for uh, ten years. And I worked in the Labour Party, and uh, Labour Party was not perfect, mm. but the imperative was the removal of Thatcherism. Mm. And this was the only vehicle that could be used to remove Thatcherism. Therefore, we worked in the Labour Party, warts and all, and um, and lost three, four elections, and then Tony Blair won. Right? <laughs> we forget that. That was an extraordinary moment. Uh, the left, at, we thought, social democratic left, seized power. And um, uh, that doesn't seem to be remembered particularly well. So does one, you know, where does one work and, and how does, what, what does one do? I think the, um, I guess the, um, at its worst, uh, somewhere like the United States, it feels more like a, um, when Freud and other people talk about trauma, uh, trauma has a strange structure where there'll be a, there'll be some kind of wound which which occurred at some point in the past, which um, is largely forgotten about, or things are quiet, and then something will happen that will trigger that wound and then inflame it. And uh, issues like the issue around race in the United States is like that. It has that traumatic structure. And since I've been here 17 years, it's happened you know, three, four times. There's been a re-triggering of the same debates about around race, the same thing, ha- same things happening, usually the police killing a, a black man. Um, and you know, there's something terribly melancholic about that. You think, well, nothing is remembered, nothing is, nothing is retained, and then things go quiet, and then the same thing's gonna happen again in a number of years. So, um, I think that, um, I mean, 
we live in places which are based on lies. Um, and um, for as long as people acquiesce in the lies that are told about those places, then nothing good's gonna happen. And I think there was, um, I think there was a way of telling a story in the 1990s and early 2000s, which felt like those lies could be historically understood, nailed down and pushed aside. I think for me, the, the 90s were a very peculiar decade because it seemed that certain structural problems in someone like the UK around say, class and race and gender had been were, were being had been named and addressed and things were moving in a kind of a cool direction and it was good and um, and people weren't nationalists in the way they were where they had where they had been and then you know lo and behold you know two decades later you find that old nationalism is back and in charge <laughs> governed by old Etonians and and and, uh, and the pandemic has buttressed that as well, but that, you know, the sense that the worst thing about the pandemic, I think, is that the everywhere it's happened has kind of retreated to its kind of national myths, you know? Um, and Australia is a very good case in point, that in a sense, you know, <laughs> close the borders, keep the foreigners out and uh, turn the place into a prison because it always was meant to be a prison anyway. and. And that, that feeling of, uh, and those old national myths, those archaic thoughts, which we maybe had in some corner of our mind, but we thought were confined to the past, have kind of come back in uh, dramatic ways. And I, I find that uh, genuinely alarming. Mm. Um, mm. And I don't know what to do with that. And the way in which, and then you've got some like social media, which is feeding that you know, feeding that in ever more inflamed, divisive terms. Mm. And, uh, and, that and that leading to intense confusion at the level of, say, government and people with administrative responsibilities. So like, you know, here or in the UK, um, I mean, no one's going to do anything about the current Omicron outbreak because uh, they don't want to be, you know, sees the people that cancel Christmas or, uh, you know, are against freedom. Um, they're worried about the electoral liabilities of some policy maneuver at this point. Whereas I guess the one thing that's still, a thing that I still have faith in uh, is, is, you know, despite everything, is the decency of ordinary people. I think that for the most part, people are, are decent and they, they do, they try and do the right thing, right? So, you know, if I'm looking down now into the traffic on Fifth Avenue and 51st Street, which is where I'm looking, there's less traffic than there was last week because people are staying home. No one's told them to stay home, but they, they know that they should keep things quiet because they want to spend time with someone they love on Christmas Day or whatever. So, and that's, so we're left with that. I think there's still a, there's still a, there's still a, 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 a bulwark of, uh, of something good in a, in civil society that um can be can be um, can be hung on to and um i think that's the task of uh 
um, that should be the focus of whatever the left means. You know, it mm. should be at the level of actual civil society movements. And and I think the left has become too principled, too abstract, and too out of touch with the actual the actual interests and lives of, of ordinary people. And it's mm. um, and there's massive, massive uh, distrust and hostility towards um, you know left liberal elites, academic elites, and and, uh, and I think it's that to some extent that's largely justified. Mm. And I really wonder what can be done. Mm. Um, it's nearly nine fifteen. Yeah. Um, do you have time for one one more question? Okay. So I suppose my final question is a kind of you know practical, pragmatic one um, in direct response to what you said. So um, yeah, I think I'm really I'm really compelled feel very moved by what you were saying about um you know the need for a more kind of civic uh movement in the politics on the left so instead of it being this kind of abstract ideological principled move to kind of bring it back into um you know the real world um and (laughs) i suppose i want to know how you think we can do that how we can move from from the abstract to the the real world well i think you just do you have to do it um by getting in there amongst it and uh see what people actually think and uh, understand it and respect it i think we have to become you know people like me you know academics that think of themselves on the left uh have to try have to do that almost ethnographic work and get back inside those intuitions and not, uh, I think, because the the real issue with, um, you know, the real issue with, let's to to use the kind of buzzwords, I mean, movements around social justice, uh, the real issue is not, um, uh, it's not reaction, reactionary tendencies against them or conservatism or anything like that. I think it's the, the exhaustion that they induce. I think that there's a kind of exhaustion that people think, uh, exhaustion that people feel in response to the endless kind of self-proclamations of the righteous. There's a lot of people out there and internet gives people a voice to do that for the morally righteous to, to preach to people and tell them what to do. And I think that's, and that induces not um, fascism as a response it induces a kind of exhaustion and an apathy and that's really dangerous that exhaustion it seems to me and uh, it seems to me that um, you have to look at um, well, you, you look back I mean the only, I, I sometimes think that the only the only real uh, uh, the only thing that people like me can do is to is to point things out historically and to say, well, you know, there have been terrible situations before, like uh, Britain in the 19th century, the, you know, the urban hells of uh, after the Industrial Revolution, uh, when people were being squashed like flies. And yet out of that came, uh, came the labor movement, came the unions, came, uh, came the Fabian, all that stuff, all that came out of there. And it's not, so the situation can be 
can be remedied by by collective action, but it requires a kind of. Um, I mean, Gramsci used to have this this great idea of what he called the organic intellectual. Um, mm. He thought there were traditional intellectuals who'd be people like me, who'd be kind of in now. Not that I was; I'm from wherever I'm from, but now. As a 61-year-old man, I'm a kind of traditional intellectual in an academic position saying, you know, this is good, this is bad. That's, or, you know, vote for this person, not for this person. That is useless. Uh, for Gramsci, the organic intellectual is the, organic, is the intellectual that comes out of the actual people, out of mm. movements on the ground. And um, these things, you know, we could think about people like you know, Mandela, uh, uh, Gandhi in a different way. These are people that, understood a context and were able to turn that to, to their advantage. Um, so where are, where are such people now and where are such movements to be found? It's, it's, uh, it's possible. Hmm. Hmm. All is not lost, quiet. <laughs> and the music, if you hear music in the background, you can, can you hear music in the background? No. Okay, good. Well, good because there's a, there's an ice rink. <laughs> the absurdity of this is there's an ice rink in the Rockefeller Center, and they play this um, twenty minute loop of music, oh, which no. is like after, after a couple of hours of it in the afternoon, it feels like it feels like a the kind of thing the U.S. military used to use to you know with uh, detainees in Iraq. They, they play heavy metal. Here I get these kind of. <laughs> you know, golden skating classics over and over again. Oh. But it, it's quite perfect, perfect thinking music. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, pleasure, Alex. Simon, thank you so much for chatting with me. I, yeah, this has been a really, really wonderful conversation. I've learned a lot. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Simon Critchley. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did enjoy it a lot, or if you enjoy any of my other work, please consider supporting my project. You can do so via the link in the bio. There you'll find links to Patreon and to PayPal, and as little as one coffee a month will help me keep up being able to afford to run this project and do more regular interviews, make more videos. So yeah, think about it. If you want to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram at AlexListens, A-L-E-K-S Listens, or on TikTok at AlexListens. I wish you all the best and have a good uh, life. <laughs>